Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 24. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are continuing our lengthy marathon. I mean, this is going to go on for a little while. Comparing the original Disney animated films to their live-action counterparts. At least, for the most part, it's animation into live-action. In some cases, it's just a straight remake. Yeah. I'm kind of feeling the pressure, though, to get all these done now, because this is the year of the remake. I, I feel no pressure to get this done. It's not like Disney is relying on us to advertise for them to get these films uh, to be major box office successes. I think, given the slate of movies they have coming out this year, I think they're going to do just fine. I, but without question, though, this has to be the most of these live-action remakes that we've ever seen in one given year. Yeah, I mean, they've said as much. Eventually, they're going to do everything they just announced, you know, it's rumored that Hunchback is going to be next in line, but I don't think we've had a year yet where they've been cranked out quite the same as as they are coming up. Last year, there were a lot of Disney movies, but two of those were Incredibles and Wreck-It Ralph. Right. So it wasn't all straight live action. You know, The Incredibles would be an interesting live action. I don't think you're going to see it for a really long time because I... My my feeling is that they're going to wrap that up as a trilogy series. Yeah, but I kind of hope that they leave the Pixar alone. Like, I, that's one of those ones where it has to be animation. Like, I don't want to see them CGI Elastigirl. Right. I agree with that. But eventually, I just, I have that feeling that this is what they're going to do. I'm just glad they live-actioned Cookie Num Nums. That's really all I care about. Yeah, that's really the only thing that needs to be in this reality that we live in. And I know a couple of weeks ago, they launched at, at Walt Disney World, and so many people were blogging about it or vlogging about it, like our friend John Sakari, the Big Fat Panda, um, who you can hear on our review of Into the Woods. And he was there, and... Um, did you get a chance to watch his video on Facebook? No, I stopped. I think I, I went on social media for about an hour that morning, and then I couldn't deal with the torture anymore. These cast members were, like, getting swarmed by people. I bet. I mean, it was... I don't want to say it was violent, because that's that's kind of overstating it, but they didn't give them any room to breathe. That's for certain. Well, you can smell them, too. That's the other thing. The scent hits you before anything else. So, of course, you're going to be like, what is that? Right. And that's not just the scent coming off the Incredicoaster at DCA. I mean, you can smell them. They're so good. I cannot wait to get down there in November because I know that the day that we go to MGM, that's breakfast. Lunch and dinner. It it might be. (laughs) And we ask for no judgment. So, we said before, not all of these movies are animation into live action some are just straight remakes this one being one of them pete's dragon um so this is the original pete's dragon though from 1977 and i know this movie means a lot to you yeah there's some big time nostalgia with this one for me um when i was little um both of my parents still worked but we lived within two blocks in either direction of both sets of grandparents so they would watch me while my parents worked and I got to spend a lot of time with my grandparents, which I loved as a child. And, you know, I'm so thankful to have had that time with them now. Um, 
And really, my mom's parents were big on the movies. That's not to say that they would like plot me in front of the TV all day, but I feel like I watched more Disney movies at their house and Pete's Dragon was one of them. So my grandma would put the movie on and then she'd go about her business, most likely cooking dinner or whatever it was. And um, the first scene of the movie is the Gogans. And when I was little, now we're talking like three years old, I was terrified of them. Absolutely terrified. But my poor grandmother, I couldn't just let her fast forward through the movie. Like she had to sit and watch the beginning with me. So one day... I have a really vivid memory like she had to go like she had to go to the stove like something was going on and she wasn't back fast enough to sit there with me and they came on screen and I started screaming for her and I have such a vivid memory of her like running back into the living room with a wooden spoon because I was screaming bloody murder. It wouldn't have been too much just to shut your eyes or or to learn how to use the fast forward button. <laughs> I was three. I knew how to use fast forward when I was three. How do you think I got through E.T.? <laughs> That's the truth. They're terrifying. We're going to talk about it. They're creepy, to say the least. Um, what about you, though? Because I feel like this isn't like a really popular one in the Disney canon. I think it's one that a lot of people forget about. I, I think that you kind of have to come from a certain time to have an appreciation for this movie. Mm. Um. You know, when the movie came out, critics really didn't love it. And they, they had said that there was a time where Disney, they felt, was really out of date and sort of out of touch where they were making these really fluffy films with borderline vaudeville acts. And it had become very formulaic. I think this movie sort of falls victim to that unfairly. While it is hokey and corny... Um, Technically, it's significant. We're going to talk about all that as we get further into this review. I agree that I think it is forgotten about. I watched this movie um, not a lot. Um, it was it was one of those films that I don't think I ever really went out of my way to hunt down. It wasn't one that we stopped and watched if it was on television. It's not one that we ever got from the video store. I think my grandmother had picked it up for us at the library w once or twice, and maybe I watched it a couple of times in elementary school. But this was not the staple for us that it was for you. Right. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think my grandpa actually had taped it off the TV. I don't think we had the VHS. Actually, no, I can tell you we didn't because I remember buying the VHS. This movie was such a staple in my early childhood. And then I guess because it had been taped off the TV, maybe we just, you know, it, something happened. It just didn't work anymore or whatever. Um, but I remember like, it being lost through my later childhood. And when I finally found the VHS, because the Disney vault is no joke, um, it was at the writer's shop in MGM. And I remember they had everything, like all the hard to find stuff. And as soon as I saw it, I was still fairly young because um, I had like souvenir money, you know, when your grandparents send you to Disney with the souvenir money. Yeah. Um, and I got that in Alice in Wonderland. Because I didn't have them and they, they were so hard to track down. That's a great story. So this obviously means a lot to you. So I'm going to let you bat lead off on this one and uh, give us the plot synopsis for Pete's Dragon. We open on a little boy named Pete who is flying through the air on what we later learn is his invisible dragon, Elliot. 
Pete is on the run from the Gogans, a family of backwoods hillbillies who adopted him for the purpose of slave labor. While Pete hides, Elliot takes care of throwing the Gogans off his trail. They spend the night in the woods and the next day head to the nearest town, which is a fishing village off the coast of Maine called Passamaquoddy. As Pete walks through the town, Elliot remains invisible but leaves a path of destruction in his wake, which the townspeople believe to be Pete's fault. Pete runs into Lampy as he stumbles out of the tavern, and Elliot reveals himself but scares Lampy. So he runs back into the tavern and tells the town folk what he saw, but no one believes him. Lampy is picked up by his daughter Nora and taken back to the lighthouse where they live and work. After convincing Lampy that he didn't really see a dragon and tucking him in, Nora notices Pete walking on the beach by himself and invites him in for dinner. After learning that he has no home to go to and the abuse he suffered with the Gogans, she invites him to spend the night and help him sort out his plans in the morning. In return, Pete promises to have Elliot search for Paul, Nora's fiancé who was lost at sea. The next morning, the traveling Doc Terminus arrives in town with his assistant Hoagie, telling tales of their travels to the people of Passamaquoddy in order to scam them into buying their exotic medicines. These same people believe the notion that Pete's arrival caused a fish shortage in town, so they stock up on the Doc's bogus remedies. Nora buys Pete some new clothes and takes him to school that day. Elliot attempts to help Pete navigate his first day and causes more damage to the town and exposes himself to everyone when he busts through the classroom wall. Though not everyone is sure of what they just witnessed, the Doc is intrigued and wants to buy Elliot, kill him, and use his dragon parts for medicine. The Doc pays a visit to Nora, Lampy, and Pete at the lighthouse and asks if he can purchase Elliot. Pete tells him that Elliot doesn't belong to him and is not for sale. After sending the Doc and Hoagie away, Nora and Lampy tell Pete they would like their situation to become permanent and that he can stay at the lighthouse with them, which he accepts as long as Elliot can stay too in the cave down by the water. As Nora has convinced Lampy that Elliot isn't real, they humor Pete and tell him they can both stay. The Gogans have managed to track down Pete and Passamaquoddy, and when they arrive in town, the first person they meet is Doc, who teams up with them and devises a plan to capture Pete and hold him for ransom in order to trap Elliot, who is away looking for Paul. The Doc finds Pete and tells him that Elliot is wreaking havoc in town and he needs to come quickly, where he runs right into the Gogans' trap and is held as their bait. Hoagie goes to tell Elliot that Pete is in trouble, and when Elliot comes to Pete's rescue, the Doc traps him in a net. Due to the collective sloppiness of the Gogans and Doc, Elliot escapes, burns the Gogans' bill of sale for Pete, and chases them out of town, and Doc falls victim to his own trap. Elliot then goes back to the lighthouse to help Nora and Lampy, who were really in trouble. The storm has knocked out the flame at the lighthouse, and there is a ship headed towards the coast. Elliot is able to relight the wick and proves to Nora and Lampy that he is in fact real. The next day, the town celebrates Elliot as the fish have returned to Passamaquoddy, and so has Paul. He reunites with Nora, and the mayor congratulates Pete and Elliot. Elliot realizes that Pete no longer needs him, and that it is time to move on to help someone else. He says goodbye to Pete and leaves him with his new family back at the lighthouse. And I kind of feel like when you read it out like that, without the music, it doesn't make as much sense. You know, the script for this film is... I the the movie is hokey. There there's no doubt about it. And I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. Sometimes you want to see something that's kind of cheesy and corny and innocent and fun. Um and I think that this movie definitely falls into that category, though I will admit and maybe you will too, um that there are parts of the script and parts of the plot that are a little too over the top, not realistic, and um, 
I kind I think kind of lend itself to not only its poor reviews but also the fact that it kind of has become this sort of cult classic forgotten favorite. For sure. I think that this is a rare one that not both kids and adults can appreciate. I think it's a good family movie. I think you definitely appreciate it as a kid, but I feel like it doesn't play as well now and you kind of see the flaws with it. You know what I think this movie suffers from? And it's sort of unique, um, at least up to this point in time, based on the movies that we've reviewed. There is a tremendous age gap in this movie. And by that I mean if you're very young or if you're a grandparent watching it with a very young child, do you have fun with it? I feel that anybody between the age of, say, 13 years old and 50 years old, I think this movie kind of falls on deaf ears. And that makes sense, too, because, you know, I was just talking about how I watched this at my grandparents' house. You know, we didn't have it in our home because really what's in it for the grandparents is Mickey Rooney. Right. You know, they grew up on him um, and they're familiar with his work. And I think that that's why they're inclined to get a movie like this and say, you know, figure, oh, my grandkid will like that. But like, yeah, I don't I don't recall my parents like ever talking about this one or being that familiar with it. So I think I think you're right. That's that's a really good point. Uh, You know, some of the effects and some of the cells when you see Elliot at times they're oversaturated and they lose detail, but overall I think that the animation inside of the live action world is impressive, but you know, for example, um when you see the teacher for the first time and she's March, March and they're all kind of doing this, you know, she and all the children are doing this hop skip and a jump little move for no apparent reason um, other than it goes with the music. Yeah, that that takes you out of it and this kid Pete is he's dirty. You can tell he's like a ragamuffin. Right. And he's been out on his own for a long time. He's he's wearing old tattered clothes and it's not like she's in some huge elementary school where there's 200 kids. It's a schoolhouse. This was the early 1900s. Right. She's got like 15, 20 kids in the class. But it's not until she's already engrossed in conversation with him for a few moments that she says, "You're not one of my students. How do you not know out of the gate he's not one of your students?" Yeah. Yeah, that's a good like, point. So, I mean, we're we're five minutes into the movie, and already you're kind of like, ugh, here we go. I mean that 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 at least is is my feeling watching this now because I hadn't seen it in so long. Well, I think the the point that I was trying to make is, and we're going to talk about the music later, but I think the music is really what drives this movie, and. You know, it's interesting because just typing this plot out and then reading it aloud, it really didn't feel like it made much sense as I was going through it. And now that I'm thinking about it now, I feel like a lot of that is because you don't have those big musical numbers spacing it out. Yeah. Because a lot of them do drive the story forward. For example, you have Pete, who's the main character. He's the protagonist of the film. He's orphaned. We don't know why. And we never find out. Right. I know that modern film focuses so heavily on backstory nowadays. That wasn't always the case because in spite of the fact that this was 1977, I mean, think about it. You think about when the first talkies came out, right? Mm -hmm. 
really, if you want to call it from a talkie moving forward, even in black and white, if you want to say modern cinema for all intents and purposes, they're only, what, not even 60 years in. So, I mean, this is sort of still primitive in film, which is funny because you're only talking about something that was made a hair over 40 years ago. But, but filmmaking and television have come so far, even in the last 20 years, 25 right. years, much less in 40 years. But I don't think that that's an excuse for not explaining why he's an orphan. It's true. I know they go on to address that and they put a spin on it in the remake, but I mean, maybe they just figured he's an orphan and we're just going to buy it and live with it and we don't need to know why or don't care why. I mean, listen, I, I didn't see the movie in theaters in 1977. Maybe an audience then didn't care about why he was an orphan. But I just feel like it doesn't add to his story or his character. No, you're right. But I, I, think, I think during that time, it wasn't really such an issue. I mean, obviously, you know, you're saying that movies are made differently now. And I think because of these franchise movies, everybody's so concerned with backstory, backstory, backstory. Um, I feel like back in the day, you know, there were a lot of movies about orphans with no rhyme. Like, look at Annie Mm -hmm. and that story. We never really, that's never really addressed. There's a whole orphanage full of kids singing Hard Knock Life. And, you know, I just feel like, um, it was almost maybe a plot device to put a kid in trouble because, you did have kids that were like they belonged to the state. That was the whole thing. And what you go on to later learn in this movie, because the Gogans keep talking about it, is they have a bill of sales. So they they purchased him, but really that was how you adopted. Yeah, I understand that. Um, and and but for a movie like Annie, they're in an orphanage. That's unfortunately that's not a very unique situation for an orphan. In this case, you've got some kid on the run, living in the woods with an animated dragon, escaping a bunch of hillbillies that bought him at a sale. How did we get there? <laughs> like, th- something happened. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, the, it's 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 not it's not a a scenario that is so general that you sort of overlook it. This is such a unique situation that we find ourselves in. I want to know why. It's interesting that you say that because my bigger issue with it is not so much how he was orphaned, but they never really address how long he's with the Gogans. Yeah. And like why now Elliot just showed up and how he was able to escape them. Right. We don't really know how long they've been together. Their relationship with each other would lead you to believe that they've been together for quite some time. But the Gogans are pursuing him and are hot on his trail right at the beginning of the movie. So if you're thinking about a timeline, clearly he's a runaway, but it doesn't seem like he's gotten that far. So I, it leads me to wonder, I mean, they, they, the Gogans, there are some throwaway lines where they mention that he keeps talking about dragons. So I guess the impli- the the implication here is that he and Pete, uh, or he and Elliot, I should say, have been friends going back to a time prior to him running from the Gogans. Right. And I guess from their perspective, you can kind of write it off as like, you know, he's an orphan. It's a coping mechanism. Yeah. So that that much I can sort of overlook. Um, But what I like about this film 
is that Elliot's shtick very early on starts to grow old, but they dial it back enough where it doesn't cross that line of being over the top or into a situation where you're saying, here we go again. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, You know, I think when we first see him or don't see him really because Pete rides in on his back and he's invisible. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of intriguing. It's like, why is this kid flying? Um, and then he still invisible, literally throws the Gogans around the woods. Um, and you still don't really know what the force is that's doing that. Um, and then, yeah, you're right. You really don't see it again. I mean, he flies a little bit, but you really don't see it again until they hit Passamaquoddy. Right. Um, I like how they do it, though. It's it's some clever sight gags. Like when Pete rolls into town, uh, he picks up a stick and he kind of runs it along a fence. And then Elliot mimics that and he completely takes the fence down. Yeah. And then Eli- uh, we're going to do this the whole time. Yes, we are. <laughs> uh, Pete. Uh, avoids wet cement, and then Elliot kind of plods right through it. Um, So I thought that was clever because, you know, you're talking about it is an animated film, it's not CGI, so I like that they went for practical in that regard. And they are impressive. Um, I think that that they still look pretty good um, based on the fact that this movie, at, at the time of this recording, is 42 years old. Right. Well, they did, um, and I love that they did this, they used a lot of the tricks from Mary Poppins. And I love that more than 10 years later, they're still going with these tried and true gags that they know that work. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting, too, because, you know, you said that this wasn't very well received. And critics were saying that it kind of got sticky a little bit. But I love that you know, you're you're employing Walt Disney's tricks still years later. Um, like, for example, uh, before they get to town, uh, the first scene where we see Elliot, they're eating apples for breakfast. And, uh, you know, we did some research into the behind the scenes and they're using the same methods that they use to shoot I Love to Laugh in Mary Poppins, where they kind of put... Uh, Pete on like a little teeter-totter to give him like that weightless bouncy look. Um, The difference here though is that they had to take it one step further because they shot against the sodium vapor background so that they could put uh, Elliot into the shot because Pete is sitting on him so he's kind of part of the background almost. Um, But what's different is that it's not like Mary Poppins where it's an animated background. So they still had to have another layer because you're shooting Pete against a black background that then has to be live action as well. Um, so it was, it was tricky to pull off and it, it looks really well done. Yes. I, I think that in that aspect, um, it definitely does still look very natural, very clean. Um, there are times where uh, Elliot's colors change, they're darker, they're lighter, and I don't think that that's done, he, he's not, he doesn't change color by by way of emoting anything, it's just sometimes the animation, and some of his details I had mentioned before look washed out, some are sloppy, um, but given the the fact that you know, un- unlike when they did Mary Poppins, where they put live action actors inside an animated world, 
you're taking a cartoon and putting it into a live action world. Right. This being one of the first to do it, I think, of its kind. If it's not the first, it certainly is very primitive um, in regards to this style of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. So I give it a pass. I give it a pass for having the guts to go out and do something that really hadn't been done before. You're right, because it's not just Elliot where the color's changing too. It also affected the background. Like yes. there are some shots where it looks more blue, more pink, uh, you know, and it is kind of jarring, like you can tell. That's not something that we sat there and watched it with a very, very critical eye. It looks like, you know, you're you're like passing a filter over it. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you're going through Instagram and you're trying to decide between Nashville and Valencia. Yeah. Um, when we see Paul for the first time and he goes, who's that? And she's like, he's Paul. He was lost at sea. My initial reaction was he wasn't lost by sea. He was eaten by Jaws. Because <laughs> tell me he doesn't look like Quint. Oh, my God. I mean, he's a cleaner version of Quint. But in that quick photograph, it's Quint. He does. I almost wish they got the same actor. <laughs> that would have been Robert Shaw. Yes. Yeah, that would have yes, been yes, interesting. Yes, I couldn't think of his name. I was thinking <laughs> of Schneider, and I knew that that was wrong. Smile, you son of... Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the other things that I found most interesting with the story, um, you know, and we've talked about it before in uh, Ichabod and Mr. Toad, the amount of drinking in oh, this yeah. film... Um, And I'm not just talking about the tavern scene, which we will get to because I do love that number. Um, I'm talking about the fact that Lampy is the town drunk. Lampy is Nora's father. He's played by Mickey Rooney. And my note on him is literally the hard eye emoji. Um, Just because I love it. This was like my first exposure to Mickey Rooney. And then when I found out he did all those movies with Judy Garland, I just like ate it up. Um, but, you know, he, he bursts in the tavern and he's talking about he saw a dragon and everybody's like, oh, he's juiced up again. Like, this is business as usual for this town, seeing him sauced. Mm-hmm. And it's surprising that even in 1977 for a kid's movie, not only that they incorporated but like it, it's a major part of the story because the only one who believes Pete and the only one who has seen his dragon is the town drunk. And you know, it's something that um, the critics had pointed out that a lot of parents actually at the time were upset about was that they drank a lot, they smoked a lot, mm. um, because it's not just in the tavern, it's not just the fact that Lampy plays the town drunk, but it's also Terminus and Hoagie. I mean, they're drinking constantly. All the time. But I will say that I like the fact that um, that Lampy is the town drunk. I think that that's a very important part of this story because it gives everybody else a reason to not believe his crazy claims, even though what he's speaking is is the absolute truth. Right. And I think that that gives him a shot at kind of redeeming himself in the end. Yeah. And, and proving that in spite of the fact that he has these flaws, he wasn't just making it up and, and it wasn't a... It wasn't a cry wolf situation where he just, he's just spinning yarns in some booze infested story. Right. And 
it is a cry wolf situation throughout the movie. They kind of keep coming back to it. So, you know, it does become increasingly frustrating for Pete that nobody believes him. And the only person that does is completely discounted. Um, What really works about it, too, is that eventually the only other person or the people who believe this are Doc Terminus and Hoagie. And uh, there's the one scene where uh, Mickey Rooney and uh, Red Buttons, who plays Hoagie, go down to the cave. And Red Buttons was like a big comedian of the time. So to see them on screen together, like stumbling down the beach drunk, it's a really fun scene. I appreciate it, but I I can only imagine like that's got to be like a a Seth Rogen and James Franco kind of thing now. Yeah, yeah, that's actually that's a good comparison because you've seen Franco and Rogen do stuff like that in some of their other films. But yeah, a lot of a lot of drinking in this and and a lot of cigarettes and and um, I think that certainly you would you'd never see it in a disney film nowadays not to this level it's like one thing it's one thing when you see it and say pirates of the caribbean because that movie is trying to be not historically accurate but that's how pirates really were but that's also a film series that isn't geared specifically towards younger children right exactly so you you have a lot more liberties in something like that rather than in this film um the teacher drives me insane this entire film. More than just the Ugh. fact that she's kind of an antagonist that you're not supposed to like because she's so cruel to Pete. Mm-hmm. But her delayed reactions, more specifically when he has his first day at school um, and and she's she's trying to enroll him in the class, she has... Like, I don't want to say it's not a stutter step, but she has like a one Mississippi to Mississippi before every reaction, before every line. And it is so distracting. And that's 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 a fault of two things. First off, the editing. Secondly, the way that she played it. Yep. I think she's got some funny quirks because she speaks in threes. Like when she says, that's irregular, irregular, irregular. Like it, it's kind of funny, but that's really the only de- redeeming thing about her. Um, I wrote down otherwise, yeah, she, she's like one of the villains in this film. How does she blame Pete for the bell ringing outside while he was inside when it started to ring? Agreed. That's annoying. It makes no sense. And, and for those who, of you who haven't seen the movie, right before... Uh, Elliot busts through the wall. The reason why Elliot busts through the wall is because they have the school bell outside Mm -hmm. and they're all in the classroom, all of them, including Pete, who's sitting in the front row right in front of the teacher. The bell starts ringing on its own because Elliot is outside playing with it. Um, She goes, what's going on with that bell? Why won't it stop ringing? And Pete stands up and goes, I'll go outside and see what's going on. I'll go outside and take care of it. So she has watched him get right. up. She's had a conversation with him. He's gone outside to try and stop the bell from ringing. And then she blames him for ringing the bell and starts to scold him and slap his hands and his behind with a ruler and a stick, which you would never see nowadays, not even remotely close to being appropriate for today's cinema, which I kind of disagree with um, because things like that really happened. I mean, you talk to my dad who's... 
what year is it? <laughs> My dad's going to be 66. Um, and he'll tell you stories about things that used to happen to him when he was in public school. My mom is in her late 50s. She went to Catholic school. Same thing happened. I mean, my, my dad, when he was in elementary school, literally had his earlobe torn by a teacher who grabbed him by the ear. Ooh. So things like this used to happen. And this is one of those scenarios where you don't see it in cinema anymore. So it's let's erase the bad things, then we'll pretend they never happened. That doesn't bother me that this is in that movie, but I don't think that you'd see it in cinema nowadays, which I disagree with. But I digress. The fact is, she knows he didn't start this. Yet and you now can she's see take... him being lifted by the bell. Right. So, you know he had nothing to do with starting this. He went outside and said he would stop it. Right. And now you've gone and beaten him with wood uh, to punish him. And it just doesn't make any sense. Well, this is the interesting thing about Passamaquoddy, and this is something that doesn't really jive with the rest of the film, is that these people are so gullible, and at the same time, they don't believe what's right in front of their face. Yeah, I know. Like, you know, the doc comes in and he's peddling his wares, uh, which is a really interesting commentary on the time when you think about it, because this was like the first version of like fake news when he's coming in and all he has to say is like, I've been to Paris and they're feeding right into it. And he's like, Oh, I've got all this exotic medicine and lotions. And because he's traveling and he's not from their town, they believe that he's actually gone to all of these places when he hasn't obviously. Um, so, when he first arrives, you know, they're like, no, he's a scam artist, and yet he wins them over again. Yeah, like almost immediately. Yeah, and, and he makes them believe in his stories. And, you know, they're smart enough to see through it at first, and then they buy right back into it. But then when a dragon comes to town, you're blaming a little boy for everything. Yeah, um, and to touch on what you said before, they, for, for like the first day that Pete is in town, they're like, ah, dragon, 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 mm -hmm. oh, with a dragon. But then the fish disappear, and it's, it started when he came to town, it's the dragon! Like, yeah. Like, uh, at, at, the, at the flip of a switch, right. they've now totally bought into this. Like, this must be the dumbest town on Earth. Either that or it's a commentary on group mentality, but it's remarkable how often those two things coincide. Yeah, really. Um, but then when Elliot does bust through the wall and you see his silhouette in the classroom, the teacher's like, he was here, it was a dragon, and everybody's like fanning her, but they don't really confirm that they believe it. The only person who does, you know, like I said, is is Doc Terminus, and he's like, how can I make a profit off of this? Which I have to laugh at, too, because Doc Terminus opens up a book. He's like, let's see, medicines. Opens up the book, dragons, 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 dragons. Oh, yes, here's the list of things we can make out of dragons. So that's another thing that doesn't really make a lot of sense because you have initially, whether it be the Gogans, whether it be the townsfolk, um, kind of calling Pete crazy for talking about dragons, yet we live in a world where dragons exist because they know what kind of medicine can be made by a dragon. So are they fake or are they real? It is very contradictory. You know, it's, it's just, it doesn't make any sort of sense and... It, it totally pulls me out of it. 
on top of the fact that you actually have a book explaining what parts of the dragon can can be used as medicine. Well, the guy's a fraud three ways to Sunday. Like, at the same time, it doesn't surprise me at all that he has a dragon book. Now, I will say, does it lead to one of the best numbers in the film? Without question. Yes. So if they do use it, it's a vehicle to move the story forward and incorporate some of that great music that we'll get into in just a few minutes. But it, it's another... It's another inconsistency. This mm. movie just has a lot of inconsistencies, and that's a big one for me. The only other thing that doesn't really jive with me on the script is when I think of this era of the pioneers, um, I think about, you know, like going west, and I'm surprised that this didn't take place in the Midwest, although the sea town does work better for the story in almost every aspect i mean yes obviously you have paul who's lost at sea you have nora and lampy working the lighthouse um the fisherman's town and the way that it plays into capturing elliot at the end like that all works it, it couldn't have worked in the west as we will later see when we review the next one but um or the the live action remake i should say um so it doesn't necessarily bother me um, but I just thought it was, it was an interesting choice, but, but good for the story, which, you know, is really all that matters because I'm okay with weird choices as long as they work for the story. Yeah. Elliot shot at redemption and the first time that people universally see him and believe him for the hero that he ends up being is when he has to relight the wick in the lighthouse. Mm -hmm. But what I can understand is you have a lighthouse that is very much elevated above sea level even in a storm waves can't crash that high and really are not crashing that high they're not showing them crash that high consistently how did a wave break through the top of that lighthouse and put that wick out that's kind of far-fetched it could have been like wind and debris and that kind of thing but you actually do see the water come up yeah and it's 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 very unrealistic um though i do love how at the end, although you are very sad to see Elliot and Pete separated, I love how Elliot moves on to help another child. And yes. I love how Pete lets him go to do that because it does two things. Number one, it's Pete's character arc, which mm -hmm. I think is very important for the movie. And it shows that Elliot is not just comic relief, that he serves a bigger purpose because up to this point... He's kind of just Pete's friend, which is great, but what makes him so different from any other thing? Right, he's I, like a loyal fact, dog yeah, throughout this exactly. whole thing. exactly. It could have been a dog. It could have been a cat. It could have been anything. Oh, no, Why? no, no, no. Cats are not as loyal as dogs. Let's not make that mistake. They aren't, but I'm saying if you wanted to use some sort of animated animal, you had the Aristocats, you had uh, Lady and the Tramp. Like, Disney Disney did so many of those animal films, you could have just as easily Baloo, right? Baloo mm. in the Jungle Book. It, you could have turned any animal into a quote-unquote friend, or a companion. companion. Yep. Elliot is more than that, but it's not until the end that you see it, and it ties the film up very nicely. Yeah. And it gives Elliot motivation it gives him character right because other than that he's the only thing that he's really doing is going to track down paul which you know is an achievement but 
it's still not it doesn't tie in it's it's not as emotional it doesn't make as much of an impact as it does by this gesture of you know acknowledging like Pete's okay now and he has a family now and he's where he belongs and I'm gonna go help someone else he's not the selfless hero right which that's his entire purpose I really like that that happens at the end of the movie yeah you know it's interesting it's that um you know it's not just in the tricks of the movie too this parallels mary poppins in a lot of ways yes um you know and again you said it wasn't well received because it got kind of sticky uh but elliot leaves pete the same way mary poppins leaves the banks children um you know i was talking about some of the uh, effects that they used to achieve the look of this film it, it's straight out of mary poppins but what was interesting too um in the beginning of the film, uh, over the opening credits, they have one of those really long sequences and it's all painted backgrounds and they, they do the titles. Uh, and then it transitions and the first thing we see is a little boy flying, which is kind of the same thing we see with Mary Poppins. And it, it hooks you into like, why is this person flying? Yeah. Um, do you have anything else to add on this script? Anything that stands out to you before we move on to the music, which no, as you pointed I'm so out, so ready for music. The music, as you pointed out before, is what makes this movie. Without the music, this movie would be completely forgettable. What's interesting is that the music is also very similar to Mary Poppins, but the Sherman Brothers didn't do this one. And I feel like there's a lot of parallels in that it's these really catchy vaudeville numbers. And there's a lot of made up words. Uh, so it was surprising to find out that this wasn't them. But I like that it does have that feel still, but without being a ripoff of their work. It has the feel. But and as much as I like the music in this film, let's be real about something. If the, if the Sherman brothers had written the music for this, it would have been much better. Then that's not to say that this music is bad. Right. But... You, I mean, the Richard, the, the Sherman Brothers could write music for anything and it automatically make it better. Yeah, that's just my opinion. Take any of the best shows on Broadway, and let the Sherman Brothers write the score, and they probably blow it away. Even the best of the best. True. I mean, this it, it felt like them though. Um, the first number that you get into out of the gate, uh, the happiest home in these hills. It's hilariously violent and very descriptive. Oh my God, yeah. Uh, okay. See, now this is where I think you can understand where I was terrified of the Gogans, especially because the number opens, you know, they, they do a close-up of all four of them. It's a mother, father, and their two sons. And they break the fourth wall and they're like jumping out from behind rocks and looking straight into the camera like they're going to kill you. Um, because I was so terrified of them as a child, I never appreciated how funny and well done this number is. Yeah. Most of the time because I was buried in my grandmother's lap. I, uh, I was doubled over every time the movie opened strictly because of, of this song. And, um, the biggest surprise is that Jeff Conaway plays one of the Gogans. That was a shock. And I did not know that until I watched it with you on this viewing. I mean, like as a kid, I wasn't really going to be like, oh, that's Kinnicky because I hadn't seen Grease yet. But 
I wish I had realized that because it makes it so much less scary. And now all I can think about is Hickey from Kanicki and it, the whole thing is just ridiculous to me. Well, this came out, I think, the same year as Grease. So I don't think that Jeff Conaway was the star that he later became. No, I'm not sure if this came out before or after, but this might have been shot first. Like he might have been cast in it first and then it was released after. Um, that I'm not sure about. I admittedly don't know enough about his career, nor do I really care about it that much. But it oh, was no, just he, so he, funny once I realized that there's a familiar face in this. It's he, you know, a sad story, a sad story with, with yeah. Jeff Conaway because he has since passed away and he had drug and alcohol problems in his life. But he he had this and he had grease. And maybe you didn't watch it, but I used to watch it because my dad loved it. He was on Taxi. Yeah. And Taxi had a tremendous cast mm. with Danny DeVito and Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. Um, really, um, and, and a funny show and still still funny to this day. That's a show that hasn't really aged at all. Um, it's, it's like watching Cheers. It, it kind of stands the test of time. And and unfortunately for him, um, he didn't he didn't really do much after that. And right. I think because he had so many of those problems. But when you think about just those three credits alone, this is a guy that you would have thought would have been a megastar for a long time. If he hadn't struggled so much and he was able to sober up, like there's no telling what he would have done. He he could have been an Oscar winning actor. Yeah. And it shows in here because he's so the four of them are so good. Like now that I've actually like watched this and not through like my parted fingers, like the whole number is so entertaining. There's a little bit of dancing. It's more like physical, like the brothers are rolling around and stuff like that. Um, but what impresses me most watching it now is their sight lines because this is obviously built on a soundstage. They're not really in the woods. Um, but in the scene, they're looking for Pete and aside from the first shot of all of them, they don't look at the camera like they're, I mean, you're not supposed to, it's a film, but they continue to search for him. And I feel like that really could have gotten lost in the singing or the dancing and they could have played to each other more than they were actually carrying out looking for him. And I just feel like it's, it's so well done. Um, and I definitely didn't appreciate that enough as a kid, like I said, because I was scared. But, um, you know, I watch it now and I, I like I want them to revamp Hoopty Do Review as the Gogans. <laughs> let's not go crazy. No, let's let's go seriously, like nothing would make me happier if I'm sitting there eating my ribs and the Gogans burst in the room. I mean, I'll probably still be terrified because now they're like alive and in the room. But I just think that would be so funny. You're the only person that thinks that. <laughs> Please don't touch the hoopty doo review. I'm going to campaign. Uh, Boo, bop, bop, bop is the next song, um, which is, it's a very nice, innocent moment. It's a lollipop candy song, you know, between yeah. between Pete and Elliot. I will say this, though. It does uh, showcase the actor who plays Pete. I believe his name is Sean Marshall. Yes. Uh, this was his first film. No singing or dancing lessons whatsoever. Uh, they just cast him, and I, I think he's really good. And, like, I'm the first one to hate on these plucky, know-it-all, quit-machine children, and I don't think that he comes off that way at all. He's really endearing. Yeah, he is. And 
I thought that um, his sight lines and his interactions yeah. with the dragon were really good. And and that's if that to me that's that's impressive for a child who's never acted before. Especially because you know we had talked about it a couple of weeks ago with Mary Poppins, where Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke said that they struggled with kind of conceiving how it was all going to be put together so for a child that's never been on a set before like he really did carry this film yeah um i believe the next song after this is i saw a dragon oh it sure is this is my favorite number i think this is really what made me fall in love with this movie um I think Mickey Rooney is so impressive because, you know, he's getting up there in years when he made this and he's still got that pizzazz. Um, I think it gets lost because the number's so big and the song is so fun, but like he does do all these little like quirky things like as he's running along, like he'll dip his finger in somebody else's beer and lick it and, uh, you know, all of his facial expressions, he's acting comedically, you know, through there and I just think he shines in this number um and it's fun like I love the way I think the tavern is the best set and I love the way that they built it up um again that's like another Mary Poppins comparison is that they built all these sets and it was kind of made to look like it's for the stage and you know they give it like this two-tiered uh you know, there's like a catwalk and they use it in the dancing. And by the end of the number, um, granted, it's soap suds. They've kind of, uh, you know, they've exploded the beer, ba- the beer barrels and everybody's dancing and there's suds everywhere. And it's just a really fun number. Yeah, it's 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 well done. The, the dancing on the barrels is great. And Helen Reddy, this was also her first movie. Yeah. Um, and I thought that she held her own really well. And she has a nice voice, which you hear in It's Not Easy, um, which is, I think, the next song in the soundtrack. And she's singing with Sean Marshall. So where Sean Marshall, not necessarily the strongest singer, she's able to bring it up a little bit and, and actually balance them out. I wouldn't say that she carried him, but I think that she definitely, um, yeah, would make up for what he lacked. I think that... Her numbers specifically um, are songs that send a positive message that don't preach exclusivity. I think she she's very she's a very inclusive person, and she thinks everybody belongs. And you know, she talks about it's not easy being someone you're not, being somewhere you're not, being something you're not, and and sympathizing with this kid. Mm. She, um, Helen Reddy, the actress, she, I think, had already established herself uh, as a singer. Yeah. Um, But what's interesting, too, is that when I was a kid, I always thought that Nora was so boring because she had all the ballads and her songs weren't as fun. And now looking at it, she does have the songs that are of the most substance, but She's actually probably the coolest person in this movie and one of Disney's coolest gals ever because when we first see her, she's looking for her dad. She knows where to look for him at the tavern. Uh, You know, she gets there and she doesn't yell at him. She's not like, come on, you're drunk. I'm taking you home. She just kind of like quietly tries to get him out of there. But before she does, she's the one who's rolling the barrels to create the pressure and pop them open. 
so that yeah. everybody gets beer and she's dancing on the bar and like you'd never uh, name one Disney princess who's dancing on a bar. Yeah, off the top of my head, I I can't I can't think of anybody. Yeah. It's it's like a drunk version of Step in Time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, she definitely is underrated and underappreciated. Um, a lot of this movie is, and we we've we hate to keep beating the dead horse, especially because we're probably burying the lead <laughs> with our final synopsis of the film, but. Uh, it's a shame that she, in particular, is forgettable because she's really an underappreciated character in the Disney catalog as a whole. Right, and especially, too, because, you know, like I said, she she's actually really cool, but, like, there's a lot more to her than that. Like she's kind because she helps Pete without question and she's holding it down at the lighthouse because her father is a drunk and she is doing most of the work. And she's also dealing with the loss of her fiance and she never puts herself first. Very strong female character and not, not something that you had really seen up to this point. I think a lot of the, uh, you know, uh, yeah, you get the Disney princesses, but they're sort of waiting. We've talked about it before. They're waiting for that Prince Charming to come. Mm. She doesn't need it. I mean, she gets Paul back at the end of the day, but I mean, she's carrying the load on her own. She's almost like a single mom. Exactly. With Uh, two kids. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I'm going to butcher this. Passamalotti. Passamashlotti. Passamashlotti. Sorry, I told you I was going to get it wrong. You sound like the doc. Pass him a massy, quad him a passy. Let me tell you something. <laughs> in in the three or four viewings of this movie that we had before we did this review, if anything impressed me the most in yep. this movie, yep. it was how they were able to get through singing those lines. It's such a tongue twister. Mm. Um, and Jim Dale was a comic genius. Yeah. I love him as Dr. Terminus. And this song is funny. And the entire scene where Red Buttons, they're putting him in drag and they're dressing him up in different outfits and scamming these people into, oh, come on up here. I'll I'll fix what ails you. And he, he, he's coming up on, on crutches and he takes a sip of the bogus medicine and he drops the crutches and starts dancing uh, like it's a vaudeville act. Really, really funny stuff, and uh, it impressed me that they were able to get through this because I couldn't say the name of this song (laughs) but once, and he's able to do it multiple times and get it wrong multiple times. Not to mention, they are sweating so profusely, and you can see it. Mm Mm-hmm. Both of them. They're both wearing, you know, like three-piece suits. They're under coats. They're in hats. And I know they shot this movie in the summer. Like, there's really not a whole heck of a lot that you could do about that. But they fought through it. And um, I love the character. I love that he's, like, always scheming about something. There's always an angle. There's always a way to make money. Um, But I think Jim Dale was such an asset to the character. Yeah, I think they shot this at that Disney ranch up in Malibu. Some of it was there, and some of it was the back lot, which is now a parking lot. Yeah. I'll post a picture on our social media because it's sad. <laughs> I think the um, I think the ranch made it through those terrible fires back in November, though. 
I believe I, I know so. one ranch was lost. It was either Warner or Paramount. Paramount um, but the Disney ranch is, is still there. Yeah, Paramount lost like their entire back lot. Yeah, it was a shame. Um, but but this set still stands, at least where they shot it is, is still there. Um, no, this is not. Oh, that's right. You're saying it's a parking lot. No, yes. but I'm saying some of what they shot, though, is still there because that ranch made it through those fires. Yes. yes. That's what I'm saying. That you are correct. But like the like, I think Passamaquoddy they built and they built the har- I know they built the harbor. So that's all paved over. And it looks bad. Like that's the, like that looks really bad. You, you could tell that that's a man made set. Yeah. It, it looks like on the Universal tour when they take you through Amity. And, you know, like, it's a it's a fun part of the tour. Like, you know, Jaws is coming, but, like, it doesn't look very convincing at all. No. And and it, it really, uh, it's one thing to see it in person and it doesn't look convincing because you know you're looking at a set. You're not supposed to know that when you're, when you're watching a film. It's very clear that they're in a swimming pool somewhere. Right. And it's, uh, it's sort of distracting. But, um... Yeah, he uh, he was great, and and the two of them together, um, we haven't really talked about the two no, of them together. Yeah. Uh, this is Red Buttons and Jim Dale. They were absolutely perfect together. Played off each other so well. Every time they're on screen together, whether they're drinking, whether they're scheming, whether they're singing, whether they're dancing, I don't think anybody had more fun making this film than those two gentlemen. Yeah, Pashmus. All right, I did it too. Haha. <laughs> Passamushlati's great, but every little piece for me like brings down the house. Yeah, and it's another it, it's kind of like the happiest home in these hills where it's in it's incredibly descriptive, borderline disturbing and violent because for all intents and purposes, they're talking about how they're going to kill and break down Elliot. Right. And sell him. But it's so good. I mean, it all rhymes. But yeah, the detail and like he he's got like such a gleam in his eye, like they both do, because all they care about is money, and they know this is or they think this is going to make them rich. But uh, it's it's just so well done, and uh, you know, it starts inside. They have like this caravan, and then they take the number outside, and they're on their stage where they've they were earlier convincing the people of Passamaquoddy to buy all their medicines. Uh, But now they're just kind of like performing to each other and they kind of run off into the night scheming. And it's, it's just such a fun number, but yeah, what really makes it is the way that they play to each other. Uh, Helen Reddy's other song that has so much heart to it. And again, sends that message is there's room for everyone because at this point now the townsfolk are basically saying we want Pete gone. Uh, we can't fish. He's brought this bad luck into the town with his dragon talk. He doesn't belong here. And her message is everybody belongs here. You make enough room and everybody belongs in this world. I was going to say that song is not actually about Elliot. No. It's about the bigger picture. Yeah. Walt Disney himself may as well have been standing in that scene with a cue card that says, do this, people. Exactly. But I like the song. I I don't think that it's... It's 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 tasteful in its message without clobbering you over the head. 
It's never too preachy. It's never on a soapbox. Right. And it doesn't feel forced where it's placed either. Like it doesn't feel like they just threw this into the film for the sake of getting the message there. Um, I think we may have, I mean, it doesn't really matter if we're going in order or not, but I think we may have skipped over Candle on the Water, which is Helen Reddy's other song. And, um, you know, we've talked about that she's kind of a forgettable character in the canon, but I think this song has really lived on. Like, I remember this being on like the classic Disney volumes. Mm -hmm. Um, and to me, it's one of the most beautiful love songs that Disney has. Yeah, underappreciated. Like for me, it's up there with "Can You Feel the Love Tonight." That's high praise. I, I, uh, I've never heard it ranked that high, um, but it's it's up there. I wouldn't put it quite that high because Disney has so many, so many phenomenal songs, but. Top 10? I'll give it top 10. I mean, to me, this is this is a song that, like, transcends Disney. Like, to me, it's something where, like, I think it would make a great wedding song, actually, but subtle. Like, it's not like Can You Feel the Love Tonight where, you know, if you do that as your first dance, it's like, oh, they picked a Disney song. This, you'd kind of have to rack your brain. Like, you'll recognize it, but it's like, where is that from? Mm-hmm. It's a more more subtle take on it. Yes, um, right after they sing There's Room for Everyone, the Gogans are back to sing Bill of Sale. And that's back and forth between Nora and the Gogans in this really fun, upbeat number where the point is they're saying, we bought him, this is Pete, we bought him, he's ours, and she's coming back saying, over my dead body, for all intents and purposes. And she's pe- telling them, I'm going to punch you in the face. It's a toss-up, really, between this and uh, I Saw a Dragon from my favorite number because this is so much fun. You know, we were talking about Happiest Home in These Hills, how they're so cool. We really haven't talked about the Gogans and, like, where they come from and, like, how you even conceptualize characters like these. Like, to me, like I said, my, my fear blinded me, but, like, they are brilliant. They're filthy. They're trashy in the way that they speak and the way that they behave. But what's so ironic about them and like you see it more and more in this number is that they're such a team and like they really do work together for their the sake of their family. Mm -hmm. Um, We also haven't talked about um, how brilliant Shelley Winters is yet either. Um, You know, that was a big name actress for the time to get in there. And I mean, I guess if you're putting mickey rooney in a film it probably wasn't that hard to to get another big name like that um interestingly enough too uh this is her second appearance with red buttons they were both in uh poseidon adventure okay Uh, but they barely have any screen time together in this film but um back to bill of sale i love this number i love the song i love the back and forth um and i think it's interesting too because there's just such a blatant disregard for the actor's well-being like you can tell back in the day like before they were like celebrities and it's like oh the talent and everybody's catering to them they were like property of the studio so when you see all these big names because like mickey rooney is in a boat with pete and nora too they're in this albeit shoddy looking harbor 
of a set that they built, they're still all in the water. And they must have had the boats either on a track or tethered or something, because I can't imagine that if they flipped over, you know, you're going to want to reset. But like, it looks like these little boats are going out. Like they put the four grown people, all of the Gogans into one little dinghy. And it looks like it's going to capsize. Yeah, and at times it kind of does take on water. I would have to imagine it was on a track um, because I don't think you could have gotten all of them on there without the boat capsizing. Um, and I also think that you would have seen the cables. Like, that's the thing. Like, when when uh, when Terminus and Hoagie are sent flying into the net, um, there's, there's a brouhaha in town and they're sent flying off their cart. You very clearly see the cables. Yeah. And I don't really know how Disney let that happen. Like, you see, uh, seeing the cables while they're mid-flight is one thing, okay? There's not much you can do. But then they shoot close-ups where they're still attached to the harnesses. Right. And uh, it's, it's really sloppy. Um, so I would imagine that they're on some sort of track... And there's something underneath that's holding that boat up. I, I don't see how they could have done it otherwise. I mean, it doesn't matter because they're all getting wet anyway, because this is where Elliot comes to the rescue and he throws them off the boat. But yeah, I mean, it, there was a penchant for, for it to flip over before they finished filming. Mm-hmm. Um, the song that you hear towards the end of the movie after... Pete agrees that he wants to be adopted by Nora and Lampy is the song that I think they tried to make the iconic song of the movie. And that was Brazzle Dazzle Day. Because if you look at the original poster for Pete's Dragon, it says it's a razzle dazzle day, Pete's Dragon. I'll be honest with you. Eh. I can kind of take this song or leave it. I think the fact that they tried to make this the spotlight song of the film was a mistake because I think that there are so many other good songs in this movie Mm. that this one honestly I think of all the songs in this movie this is the weakest one to me there's room for everyone should have been the standout song from this film because that's the one that really carries the message more than anything else um I do love this number, though. Um, You know, we were talking about that they were shooting on a set, but uh, they had to have gone off set for this because they actually go to the top of the lighthouse and there's no way of cheating these shots with a background the way that, you know, they're they're going all the way up the lighthouse. They're they're shooting it uh from higher up looking down and you can clearly see that it's on the cliffs well that they did shoot in the pacific northwest right um which they did a really good job too because we did say it when we were when we were talking about this movie i know passamaquoddy is not a real town obviously but it's supposed to be in maine and um the way that they shot the lighthouse i mean the attention to detail is really remarkable because the water is always to the right of the lighthouse which would be the East Coastline. Right. Uh, so, you know, that was just really, really well done. But it was worth it to take it off the set to do this number um, and get all those shots because it makes it really believable. Like for Candle on the Water, I think that was all done on the set because really it's just the light behind her, you know, and she's like up on a platform or whatever. This, they're like clearly up there. You can't fake the wind in their hair. Like there's no way. 
that they cheated this one. Oh no, Candle on the Water is absolutely done on a set, uh, but but I uh, yeah they they did a nice job with it um, with the choreography, but the song's okay. I just this to me I I see where people disliked the movie and said that this is sort of a retread of other things. This this song is not special. It just isn't. I was going to say, it's no Super Cal. No. But it's, it is forgettable. Of all the songs in this movie, I this is my least favorite. It's another example of a disregard for the actors, too, because I don't know that you'd see that now. Like having having a kid and one of America's greatest treasures on top of a lighthouse singing and dancing. Yeah. And it looked pretty windy that day. The other thing is that they're singing this after he's now agreed to be adopted. To me, it makes more sense to make it a song about becoming a family, Mm. the importance of family. Why the hell is it a a brazzle-dazzle day? Well... Is that... I guess that's their way of saying it's a lovely day? Yeah. That's exactly it. Because part of the lyric... When... uh, I I don't remember exactly, but I think some of Nora's lyrics are throw off the past and everything in it. Um, yeah, I mean that that's it. It's kind of leave the past behind and it's it's let it go. Yeah, but a day at the beach is a brazzle dazzle day. A day on vacation is a brazzle dazzle day. <laughs> the fact that you're for you're you're kind of adopting wait well, not kind of you are adopting a child right. I felt that the the story and the and the point and and the the whole premise of it could have been something better than a brazzle dazzle day. I think I think the the effect of of doing something so selfless is so huge. It's monumental. And I think that it's that that act of kindness deserves something better than this. That that's how I feel. That's true. You know what's interesting, though? And this is just going to collapse the whole movie, and now I feel like I'm completely trashing this movie that was such a big part of my childhood. But, you know, they're trying to get him away from the Gogans who treat him like a slave, and they beat him and make him do chores. But, like, when they tell him that they want to adopt him, he's painting the lighthouse. So, really, what are you doing other than taking him in, putting a roof over his head, and putting him to work? Well, because the difference is they're going to paint the lighthouse together, whereas the Gogans yeah. would have been like, paint this, and they would have gone off to, you know, go shoot squirrels and whatever <laughs> else they do. And, I mean, they treat him infinitely better, but it's it's just funny. It's an interesting parallel that that's when they chose to tell him. Yeah, but but different, though. I, yeah, I know it is. It's different. Yeah, I, I think that it's apples and oranges. Um, at the end of the day... Um, and I don't I don't mean this as a negative, but I like the movie. I don't think it holds up. I I don't think um I don't think the story really holds up. I don't think a lot of the effects hold up, although at the time they were impressive and I can appreciate them for what they were. Um I, I think the fact that this movie has become very forgettable tells you what you need to know about whether or not it holds up. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I enjoy this movie, but it's it's. I I think the Disney public has spoken. Um, I it's it's not. Um, uh, 
it's not black cauldron in in ways of being forgettable but um i just think that this movie had its time i think that this movie is stuck in its time and i think that given so much of 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 the film the way that it's made the look of it the feel of it the whole the hokiness and the corniness of it um I think it was good for for when it came out, although some people will argue that it was even outdated for 1977. I think it just doesn't hold up anymore. That's not to say don't watch it. That's not to say I don't have fun with it. But I do think that, unfortunately, this one is one that just doesn't stand up to aging the way a lot of the other films that we've discussed have. I unfortunately agree, uh, especially with, I mean, that's the thing. I still love this movie, but what I love about it now is really more the nostalgia than anything else. Like, am I sitting there going, oh my God, this is a masterpiece? No. And I know I keep comparing to Mary Poppins, but I think it is good to draw from there because we spent two hours talking about that movie and- how amazing it holds up and we were in fear that Mary Poppins Returns wasn't going to live up to it and with this one you know they did the remake I wasn't necessarily as invested in it you know I I wasn't afraid that they were going to completely ruin the film um but I, I definitely agree. Um, I think like even the actors, they were of their time, but like they're unfortunately like not as legendary as like Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke where like kids now are going to know them and it's going to be recognizable. Um, I don't think that they're going to appreciate the animation as much because it's come so far since. Um and I don't think that people are going to embrace the Hulk. But you're right. I mean, like, watch the movie. Show it to your kids. It's still a fun movie. It's got a great message in there. And the music is so fun. Like, if for nothing else, like, they're going to be thoroughly entertained by the songs. But, yeah, as much as it grieves me to say, I think I, I think 1977 is where this peaks. News this week, and, and this, this is huge. Black Panther gets nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Picture. And it also just won Best Ensemble Cast at the SAG Awards this weekend. Uh, let me tell you something. We we talked about it when we did our, our year in review a couple of weeks ago. I really like this movie a lot. Do I think that it was Best Picture worthy? I mean, the cast really is that good. And visually, it's stunning. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty groundbreaking because I don't think we've ever seen a superhero film that's been nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. I think the only one that's ever come close is Dark Knight, but that was because of Heath Ledger's performance. Yeah, that got nominated for like sound editing and special effects and, and Ledger won for Best Supporting. But no, this is the first one. And you have to you have to wonder now. And we've seen a lot of the Best Picture nominees this year. It's not like it's a weak crop. So you have to wonder no. moving forward, are the superhero movies being recognized really for being more than just a comic book on screen? I have mixed feelings about it because 
I'm of the mindset that it should only be five Best Picture nominations. I think there have been years where nine or ten were way too many. And as a result, weaker movies were being considered when they shouldn't necessarily have been. But I think this is a solid contender. And um, more importantly, I'm glad that it's still getting recognized when this came out early 2018. Right. We actually thought it was 2017 at one point when we recapped it in our year in review for 2018. Um, So I'm glad that it wasn't forgotten about when it came time to consider it for award season. And it is getting a re-release, which is not uncommon when movies are nominated for Best Picture and they were released so long ago, they kind of get put out there for your consideration. If you haven't seen Black Panther in theaters, even if you have the Blu-ray, I think you'd be doing yourself a favor by going and see it in the theaters because it was so stunning on the big screen. Like, I, we might actually go see it again. Yeah, I'd go check it out again like, just it was, for the sake of seeing it on the big screen again. It was that good. And congratulations to everybody that worked on that film. Really an outstanding piece of work. That's going to do it for us this week. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share the podcast. You can follow us on social media at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't forget the website, www.monorealradio.wixsite.com, where you have the links to all of the uh, films that we review, the Amazon Instant Video links, a great partner of ours over at Amazon.com. And if you're looking to book a trip for this year, I'm seeing some great last-minute deals for February break. I've seen the hotel prices dropping a little bit, so definitely get in touch with me at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.